Welcome. You're listening to sermons and talks from Providence Church in Brisbane. We believe that God speaks to us through His Word, the Bible. So we pray that as you listen, you'll be encouraged and challenged to love Jesus and live for Him. For more information about Providence Church, please visit our website, www.providencechurch.com. That's Daniel, chapter 1, the whole chapter. Um, If you are reading from the paper version, it's page 613. In the third year reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judea, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judea, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed and quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judea. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azrael. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azrael, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. He asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azrael, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azrael. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of, the, matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather as your people this Sunday, this beautiful Sunday. We thank you, Lord, that we get to hear from your word in Daniel as well. We thank you that uh, a couple thousand years ago, there was a man who walked this earth and he was faithful and he trusted you. And he was a man who uh, now models to us what it looks like to stand firm in in the faith. And so we pray, Lord, as we glean from uh, the words in this book, in in, in Daniel, that you'll encourage us you'll challenge us, you'll convict our hearts to be people who know you and love you and want to live for you. 
And so, Lord, we, we thank you for this opportunity to hear from it now, uh, and, and we pray this in your son's name. Uh, God's people said, amen. Let me ask you guys a question. Have you ever felt pressured to do something that you weren't comfortable with? Yes? Some nods. Yes, you guys have felt that before. Uh, let me tell you one of my oldest memories. Uh, when I was 12 years old, and this happened to me, uh, I managed when I was young in my primary school years to get all the likes and all the uh, attention of all the teachers. I became the president of the student council. I was a school captain, essentially. Something I was, I'm really proud about. Uh, as a kid, all the teachers liked me, right? And uh, I was essentially, the rep I had the reputation of being the teacher's pet. Now, you wouldn't believe that now, all right, from, from knowing who I am, but I had been raised. I was raised with very good values. Uh, my mom was a God-fearing woman. She instilled these values of being polite and kind and obedient uh, to authority especially, so I was good to the teachers. Uh, but I remember clearly this one time when I was 12 years old in the playground, and all the cool kids uh, were there, and uh, there was like two or three of them. Uh, the cool kids who I wanted acceptance from, they came up to me and they said, Mikey, no, they called me Mike. I wasn't called Mikey. Mike, you're such a goody-goody. How come we've never heard you swear before? Now, at that moment, I hesitated. I was like, oh, they're right. I don't really swear, do I? I've never felt the need to swear. Uh, so I did what any kid who wanted acceptance did. I untucked my shirt, put my swagger on, right? Took a deep breath and said, and I said the F word. F, 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 like that, right? And I wanted to prove my point to them. I could swear, but it was the most awkward, cringeworthy, I'm cringing now, cringeworthy experience of my childhood. What I did at that moment, I opened Pandora's box because <laughs> what happened throughout all my teen years, I was a swearing machine, all right, all the way until I was 17, until I met Jesus and found a good reason to be less crass with my words. But this was 12-year-old Mikey, right? I wanted to fit in with the cool kids. I wanted to be cool like them. I compromised my values to fit in. They fed me this narrative that, that this is who I should be because everyone else is like this. I'm the one who doesn't fit in. I was a goody-goody, and, and, that, and that just wasn't cool. So just swear, little Mikey, just swear. Just do it. Just compromise. And I wonder, when was the last time you felt pressured to conform to the culture around you? When was the last time you compromised your values to be accepted by your peers? And I'm not talking about childhood, right? I'm talking about recently. For the Christian in the room, when was the last time that you strayed away from God because the culture around you enticed you to be more like them and less like Jesus? We live in a secular culture, don't we? It's not a religious culture. We don't live in a, a religious country. And the secular culture tells us to do anything but follow the God of the Bible. And to do so, man, that would be social suicide, exclusion from your peers and your colleagues. But today in this text, we're going to see how this guy Daniel, Daniel in his white vans, was able to stand firm in his convictions in God, living in Babylon, and how we too can do the same. Let's get into this passage and let's keep your Bibles open so we can see how it plays out and why this part of the Bible in the Old Testament is relevant to us today in 2021. Let's start off with the context, right? We need to understand the context of what's happening. We know it's a book about a guy called Daniel. That's, it's named after the guy who we're hearing about, a Jewish man who lived in the time of the exile. That means the time when Israel, God's people, God's nation, were exiled out of their homeland to Babylon. Let's read it together again, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. 
the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylon, Babylon, Babylonia, and put in the treasure house of his God. Stop there. It begins, right, by grounding ourselves in history. How often do we forget that the Bible is, is a historical account of things that have happened in our world, right? There are so many genres in the Bible, and sometimes we come to it thinking, oh, this is just fiction. This is just poetic. This is just metaphorical. This is just made up. Daniel starts off with this historical na- narrative. This happened in her Earth's history long before any of, our, any of us were born, right? Thousands of years ago. We're told Babylon is a superpower at this time, and Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, the great city of Jerusalem that once reigned powerful under, the, under kings like David and Solomon, has fallen. Jerusalem has fallen. Babylon is now uh, the superpower. If you don't know where Babylon is, it's where, where modern-day Iraq is today. Now, last week when uh, Phil was here preaching, and he showed you guys a map, and I know it's not a competition, but I've got a map for you too. <laughs> and so here's a map. Uh, <laughs> this is the uh, right. This is 586 BC. This is when it happened. But, come on now. <laughs> Babylon is where Iraq is, and so they've gone over to Israel, and that's Judah and Jerusalem, right? So that's a Babylonian empire. They be, they're the superpower in the Middle East during this time. They've come and they've conquered Judah, Jerusalem, the people of God, Israel. They've been deported over to Babylon now. Right, the people have been moved, deported over. They've left their hometown. They've been forcefully uh, taken from their homeland. They're taken into exile. Babylon defeated the Assyrians before them. They were the, the great nation, and it was King Nebuchadnezzar, as we read, who's the king of Babylon, the great leader in history, the king who built up Babylon with, with great beauty and architecture. You know, again, this is real. This is in history. Uh, if, uh, if you've ever been to the Met Museum in New York, you would, you would see in the Met Museum there's this cylinder the next the next image this is a cylinder on this cylinder it says i built a strong wall that cannot be shaken with bitumen and baked bricks i laid its foundation on the breast of the netherworld and built its top as high as a mountain this is king nebuchadnezzar's cylinder inscripted found in the ruins of babylon nebuchadnezzar existed he was a man that it was a king that lived i was in the british museum this is this is that was taken from google but the next image this is my own photo I'm really proud of it. So I was there in the British Museum a couple of years ago, and I was like, oh, one day I'm going to use this photo for church. Now here it is, Building Babylon. This is a stone tablet that's there in the museum there. You can see it. And it talks about how uh, Nebuchadnezzar built up this great city. This is from the ruins of Babylon. Can you imagine that? This actually existed. This story in Daniel actually is real and talks about this king that ruled and, and conquered Jerusalem and Judah, and people were taken out into exile. Just lived in a different era of history. Right? And so we're going to see in the next 10 weeks how this all played out, this idea of Babylon and Judah and Daniel living in exile in Babylon. So how did Israel end up in Babylon? Right? That's your question. If you are someone who is reading this as an Israelite, one of God's people, how did our people leave the promised land that God promised us, Israel, to be in this foreign nation in Babylon under this foreign king? Did God desert his people? Is that what's happened here? Did he leave them to fend for themselves against the might and power of King Nebuchadnezzar? What are we told in verse 2? What does it say? It says, The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. God delivered Jehoiakim. God delivered Jerusalem, Judah, Israel, over to Babylon. Judah fell because God had planned for its fall. How did Israel end up in Babylon? It was God who gave his people over to the foreign power. Why? 
why would God do that? Jerusalem, you know, wasn't captured because God was too weak to protect it. In fact, it was Nebuchadnezzar, was neg- the, the king was himself a tool in the Lord's hands, a tool to discipline his own people. They're there in Babylon, uprooted from the home, because God wanted to show them there's repercussions for your disobedience, for your sin. And what am I talking about? You have to do this in your own time, but you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 29, you can read about it. There are blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. God is, is, is playing out what he said he would do. If you obey me, I'll bless you. If you, if you disobey, I'll curse. Uh, the great theologian John Calvin, he makes a comment about this. King Nebuchadnezzar did not possess Jerusalem and was not the conqueror of the nation by his own valor or counsel or good luck, but because God wished to humble his people. That's what's happening. God delivered Israel over to Babylon because the people had turned away from him. This is what they should expect, exile. So from the outset, Daniel is telling us something. All right? Israel, you're responsible for your exile. Your sin is, is the reason why. Now what happens? Nebuchadnezzar, he deports the Jews to Babylon amongst the royalty and nobility. He chooses the really physically fit ones, the good-looking ones, the smart ones, to serve in his court, the king's court. Uh, what happens? They were taught, in verse 5 onwards, they were taught the language, the literature, the customs of the Babylonians. We're told they were fed food and wine from the king's table. And verse 6 says, Among those were chose, who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now think about this for a second. What is Nebuchadnezzar doing? He's got these fit, young, uh, noblemen from Israel. What is he doing? He's indoctrinating them, isn't he? Uh, I switched on a documentary the other day on Netflix. Uh, It's called Becoming a Tyrant. Have you guys seen that? Oh, wow, it's really good. You should watch it. Uh, it, it talks about methods, the, the playbook of how to become a tyrant and how to seize control over a nation. This is, what, this is it. Um, using, uh, using Hitler and the Nazi party as, as an example, uh, what, did, what, did, what did Hitler do? He did really so many bad things. Uh, but one thing he did, right, to get conformity in the Nazi party is he got everyone to wear the same uniforms. Loyalty, loyalty came from the same group of people uh, wearing the same uniforms, make, you know, marching, saluting, uh, wearing the same swastika badge, um, you know, Heil Hitler, that sort of stuff. You're doing the same thing. Everyone conformed to the same thing. And that created a loyalty. If you're not standing with us, if you're not flying the flag, conformed, then you're against us. There was a conformity that, was, that, that Hitler did to get control of his nation. You can see here the tyrant king, Nebuchadnezzar, what is he doing? He's getting them to conform to their culture, peer pressuring them to lose their Jewish heritage, to be a Babylonian to forget about being a Jew, learn the language, learn the culture, eat the delicious food that comes from the king's table. Uh, There's a quote in the movie Monuments Men. And uh, Monuments, I don't know if you've seen that movie, it's a group of soldiers rescuing art and books from before the Nazis burned them all, right? It's precious art and books. And the leader of the group of the Monuments Men, he, he says this, he says, you can wipe out an entire generation, you can burn their homes to the ground, and somehow they'll find their way back again. But if you destroy their history... You destroy their achievements, and it's as if they never existed. And that's what Hitler wants. Now, that's a quote in a movie, but that's what happens, isn't it? Even in history, in our history, in the world's history. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. Forget about 
Everything that Israel is about, we'll take all your articles, we'll put them in our temple instead. Forget about God. Forget about your Jewish heritage. You're a Babylonian now. He does that with their names even. In ancient times, names were such an important thing as your identity, who you are. The name Daniel, do you know what that means? It means God is my judge. And his name is what? It's changed to Belshazzar, which means uh, lady goddess, protect the king. That's what it means. Azariah means Azariah. You know, Yah, it's short for Yahweh, if that's the name of God in the Old Testament. Uh, Azariah means God is my help. But it's changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nego, a Babylonian god. Shadrach, Meshach, those Babylonian names, it's got something to do with the god Marduk, right? You get the point. He's changing their names because he wants them to find their identity in being a Babylonian now. Their Hebrew names, it doesn't mean anything to them. And they're losing their heritage. He's indoctrinating them. And what's happening here in the first seven verses is, is, is exactly that, Nebuchadnezzar. He's taking away their identity of being Israel, God's people. Learn the language, change your name, and eat from the king's table. Now, what happens? We see Daniel and his friends, they stand firm in their convictions. They don't follow this king. They follow a different king. They follow God. Sure, they'll learn their customs. They'll learn their cultures. They'll learn the language. They'll even let them change their name. But they're not going to compromise who they follow as their king. And they make this resolve, don't they? Not to eat the food from the king's table. Let's keep reading verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. Daniel didn't fight against the name change, but he's here standing firm, isn't he, against the, this lavish food from the king's table. Why? Why would he stand against the food out of everything? I mean, if you were offering me high-class fried chicken, oh, for a king, fit for a king to eat, that'd be hard to say no to, right? Daniel, he stands against eating from the king's table. Why? Now, some people who have uh, made comments on this, they think, well, it, it, it could be because it's kosher food. You know, it's, it's, not against, it's against the Jewish laws to eat food. Uh, it's food that could have been sacrificed to idols. But vegetables would have been sacrificed to idols too. So it can't be that. Wine isn't kosher. It can't be that. Why? Are they saying that it will defile them? I think the best way to understand this part is to see that eating food from the king's table is an acceptance. It's a picture of acceptance. It's a picture of an allegiance and fellowship with the king. To eat from the king's table is to eat with the king, acknowledging that he is your king. It's really the last step, isn't it, in being assimilated. Now eat my food. To be a Babylonian who lives under the rule and reign of Nebuchadnezzar and to reject your, your king, God himself. Daniel makes this resolve. He refuses the food because he refuses the relationship with this king. And instead, he wants the king's court, this official, to see that even on a, a diet of vegetables, he'll be nourished. He'll be even more healthy than everyone else. Verse 15, at the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. Amazing. On vegetables. <laughs> Let me say something here, all right? This isn't a prescription to go be a vegetarian. 
right? In the Bible, there are times uh, to be, there are prescriptions and descriptions, right? Prescriptive text where it says, go and do this. Other times are just a description of what's happening in the story. This is a description of what's happening that Daniel did. Daniel wasn't a vegetarian. Later on in chapter 10, it actually implies that he ate meat as well. Uh, And here's the thing, right? People have taken this out of context. Uh, Google it. You can Google this. I actually Google it. I got a screenshot of this. Daniel diet. (laughs) There are books, there are blogs, cookbooks, Cookbooks, articles, they're called the Daniel Diet, the Daniel Cure, the Daniel Fast, 21 days, 10 days, eating vegetables, grains, it'll, looking, it'll leave you looking lean and mean, right? Now, sure, be a vegetarian, be a vegan. It's a good thing to do if, if, if it's for sustainable, ethical reasons. There's a great vegetarian restaurant down the road in Market Square. Go there afterwards. It's good to eat vegetables. I'm not saying it's not, right? Eating less meat is a good thing, but please don't say because Daniel did it that we should be vegetarian. Right, we're good Bible readers here at Providence. We want to read in context. Daniel isn't doing it because he's promoting a healthy diet. He's doing it to prove to the king's court something, isn't he? He's trying to prove to them that God will take care of them, even on a diet of just vegetables. Verse 15 it emphasizes it to the reader. They looked more nourished, more healthier, showing that God can do anything. So significant, isn't it? Daniel stood firm with his resolution to stay faithful to his king. His God, even, even when the pressure to compromise and conform was all around him, his courage was so amazing. Yeah, change my name, change my clothes, give me a new language, but you can't change his heart, his faith, his allegiance, which is seen through the resolution he's made. No peer pressure here, no compromise. What the chapter finishes is God preserves Daniel. He even promotes him as well. Verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with him, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Ten times better. Wow, what a humble brag by Daniel here. Why why do we need to know this detail, though? This is good. This is good detail, right? Daniel stayed, verse 21, he stayed in the royal court until the time of King Cyrus. He's the next king. He's not the king of Babylon. He's the king of Persia who conquers Babylon. Daniel stays in the presence of the king for that long because God preserves him. He blesses him. He takes care of Daniel. That detail is there because we, we need to see that God sustained. He gave knowledge. He gave wisdom so that Daniel could stand out in the crowd, admired, respected by the Babylonian king himself. There's a picture here that, that the reader, us, we need to see the picture. Who is the one pulling the strings behind the scenes, taking care of everything? Who is the one whose plan is unfolding? It's not King Nebuchadnezzar. If you lived during that time, you'd feel like King Nebuchadnezzar is in control that you're under his oppression. But no, Daniel in chapter 1 wants us to see God is in control. Have you got your Bibles open again, this chapter? Look at it again. Verse 2, what does it say? The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Verse 9, what does it say? God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. Verse 17, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. 
if you have your, uh, uh, if you have a different version, the, not the NIV, the ESV perhaps, or even the original version, whatever, uh, you'll see verse 2 says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim. Verse 9, God, God gave Daniel favor and compassion. Verse 17, these four youths, God gave them learning. God gave, God gave, God gave, God gave. What does Daniel want us to see when we pull back the, the curtain? God. God who is in control. God whose plan is unfolding. There's a word you should all be familiar with here at this church. It's the word providence. Providence means God's, God's plan is unfolding. God governs all things. That's what providence means. All things are under his sovereign plan and control, the good and the bad. And this looks bad for Israel, doesn't it? They've lost against Babylon. They've been deported, exiled. Imagine that, leaving your hometown, being taken to a foreign nation as, you know, as exiles. You have to leave, you're forced to leave your home with only the clothes on your back. Daniel, he's been indoctrinated with the Babylonian way of life under this king. But this is what God intended for his people. Preserving, promoting Daniel to the king's court, that's where God wants Daniel to be. Friends, that's providence. Where we are in life, the good and even the hard and difficult times, we can trust God because of his good providence. And God's providence and plans are always for his glory and intended for our good, even if we might not see it or feel it in those moments. It's not easy trusting God, is it? But look at this God who gave in chapter 1. He's the same God who gave to Daniel. He's the same God who gave to us. What did he give? He gave his one and only son, didn't he? In love. At the heart of the gospel, we see God provide in extraordinary ways for the world a sacrifice for our sin. Jesus, who died on a Roman cross and took away our sin, who was raised from the dead to defeat death itself. Do you see his providence that has played out in history? That one of the most unjust events, most brutal deaths to an innocent party, to Jesus, was planned by God to bring about the greatest salvation in history. The death of Jesus was the plan by which the world will be saved. Isn't this God of providence a king worthy of our allegiance, our worship, our very hearts? This God who has worked behind the scenes in your life and in my life to provide for you, to care for you, to preserve you, to give you joy and peace and ultimately eternal life to bring you and I, unworthy as we are, into a, re a relationship with him by his generous, lavish love. This God is the God that we get to know and follow, just like Daniel did. But you know what? Don't just look to Daniel. Daniel is a good example, sure, but he was still human. He still had his flaws, I'm sure. If you want to look at an example of faith, one who stood firm in the face of ridicule, shame, and humiliation, look to Jesus, who followed God the Father in faith to the point of his death, who trusted God the Father perfectly, Jesus didn't compromise to the culture around him. In fact, he taught us to live countercultural ways. He did that trusting God. He did that for you and for me. Jesus is the one who is now our king, who is the one who sits on the throne. Jesus is the one who's worthy of our praise and our worship and our allegiance. Amen. We have heroes in the Bible like Daniel. And we're going to see more heroes like that who stood firm. But the hero in this book of the Bible and the rest of the Bible, it's not Daniel, it's Jesus, isn't it? That's who it's all pointing to. The hero is God who sustains and takes care of Daniel. Daniel's only able to stand in the face of peer pressure when he acknowledges that there's a greater king in control of his life. 
Now, if we don't, if we don't have that conviction, we're going to all cave into peer pressure, aren't we? So, friend, let me ask you, in a world that offers you food from the king's table, how will you respond? Will you have a taste, a bite? Will you feast at that table of Babylon? Our world that seems so much like Babylon, a world that will give you a narrative to believe, it will dictate your fashion, it will program you to think like they think, to give you a culture to believe in, to live by. The world is like Babylon. Our secular culture will tell you that your views as a Christian is irrelevant. It's outdated, it's nonsensical. They'll tell you to be more like them, be progressive like they are because you're outdated. Conform to the world around you, share their views of money or greed or success and sex. Follow their narrative of identity and status and popularity. Bow down to the kings of culture, sex, money, power. Just have a sip. Drink the Kool-Aid. And it's like a tyrant's propaganda, isn't it, that's being slowly fed to us bit by bit to conform, to compromise. Now, some Christians will take this narrative and they'll, they'll embrace it all. And you won't even be able to tell the difference. They'll look, live, and act just like the culture around them. And that makes me sad to see that when that happens. When, when the church looks just like the world around them. Their lives are basically indistinguishable. Sure, they call themselves Christian, but it's not Christianity at all. Well, you have Christians on the other end of the spectrum. They'll want to build a wall. They'll want to reject all of culture. They'll look down on you for listening to certain types of music or movies or whatever, watching movies. But really, if they were going to reject all of culture, man, they should go off the grid completely, shouldn't they? Because there's always elements of culture in our lives. We're always consuming something. Both ends of the spectrum, completely embracing or completely rejecting, they're not helpful options. We still have to live in this world, don't we? So let's establish a good foundation on how we should think and live. As Christians, we might be in this world, but we aren't of this world. This isn't our home. In 1 Peter chapter 1 in the New Testament, uh, just the first verse, it talks, he uses this term, he calls us elect exiles. We're living in this world as exiles, waiting one day to be at home with our king. This isn't our home. The heavenly Jerusalem will be so much greater than what this world has to offer. But in the meantime, just like God's people here in Daniel, we'll be put into positions feeling a lot like living in Babylon. Where will your resolve be, friends? Where will your heart's allegiance be? Sure, it looks like a bit of fun. looks good to, to, to gossip about our co-workers and talk about our boss behind their back. Yeah, it feels like a lot of fun having that extra shot that puts you over the edge. Sure, it looks like fun to throw money wastefully at another speculative investment that might give you some return. It looks like fun to play around with sex outside of God-given marriage. But what happens when we go down those paths? I mean, it's so alluring, isn't it? What's happening? Babylon wants you to feast from the king's table, to taste the sweetness of sin. But where does your allegiance lie? Who is your king who sits on the throne? Will it be Jesus? The voices around us, they promise so much, but they deliver so little. We need to be discerning, friends. We need to have our heads switched on. Be aware of what's being fed to us, that you have to look a certain way, act a certain way, believe a certain way, live life a certain way to fit in. Question it. Line it up with what the scriptures say. It's so subtle sometimes as well, but it's all around us on social media, in the movies we watch, the music we listen to, the fashion we wear, the voices around you at work or school. 
Sometimes we think even, you know, the, 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 the innocent family cartoons, the, the Disney movies, man, they're spinning a narrative. Do you know that? They're telling you to believe in something the way that they think. Babylon wants to lead your heart away from God. Be discerning. At the same time, those things can be good as well. I'm not saying they're not. God gifts us with music and movies and beauty and fashion to enjoy. But when they start leading our heart away from God, we've got to stand firm. Like Daniel, have a resolve that you won't participate if it leads your heart away from loving Jesus and loving people. Show the world around you what or who you will stand for, even in the face of public scrutiny and humiliation and rejection. Be discerning. It isn't easy. It takes wisdom. It takes support. It takes Christian fellowship, people around you to to talk into your lives. Be humble enough to receive that. Friends, life isn't black and white. We have to learn how to live in the gray areas of our culture and our lives. All of culture isn't all equally evil. We have to figure out how we can work with it, even redeem it, redeem culture, right? And so the warning is not to make compromises with your convictions. Be aware. When you find the temptation, the current too strong, you find yourself floating away from the shore, from the grace and love of God, look to the one who Daniel trusts in. Stand firm in faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Now, if you're not a Christian here today, I hope you've realized something. We don't live or start life with a blank canvas, do we? All around us, culture is feeding us something. Look around and you'll see there's worship everywhere. The idols of success and popularity, wealth, comfort, just to name a few. Who or what will we worship in life? We're all worshiping something. I really want to invite you, if you're not a believer here today, to come and get to know this God that we worship. Because just like what we read today, this God wants good for us. This God wants to preserve and take care of us. There's life to be had under his rule. Keep looking for truth in the pages of the Bible. Keep asking your church friends questions. Find answers. And perhaps you're already there. And perhaps now is the time you want to ask God in prayer to show you who he is, show you his greatness and how you can worship him. Maybe you're there already. But for the rest of us, you believe in God and you call Jesus your king in life. As we read Daniel 1, how will you respond? As I wrap up, let me encourage and challenge you. Next time, next time you're in the school playground and the cool kids come up to you and say, just do this one thing. Just do this one thing, you'll be accepted. Just know, it's a trap. It's a trap. Instead, remember the story of Daniel, right? That he was offered lavish food from the table. But in his integrity, he stood by his convictions. What or who will you stand for? Will you live that countercultural life and stand for your faith in Jesus? Friends, trust God. He will preserve us. And when we know this truth, we can persevere and stand firm in faith. Let's pray. Now, Father, we thank you that you are the God of Daniel and, the, and our God, and, and that we know that you love us. To, you loved us enough to send your son Jesus to be our sacrifice for our sin. We thank you, Lord, that you are God who does love and does care and has a plan. You've shown us your great salvation plan in Jesus, the redemption narrative that we see in the Bible. Help us to hold tight to that. That's what we stand by. We believe in a God who is love, who is justice, who is mercy, who is good. Help us to hold on to that truth as we go out into the world, as we're surrounded by our culture that tells us everything but that. Help us to stand firm with our convictions in our integrity. Help us to be men and women who want to fly the flag of Jesus above all else. 
because he is the God, he is our king who is worthy of our hearts, worthy of our allegiance. So I pray, Lord, as we go through Daniel and as we spend the next 10 weeks doing Daniel, help us to keep standing firm. Keep standing firm in faith because you're the God worthy of our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.